Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin Campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Kaspard and Holden Turner. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of students, staff, and community members. This is the first of a two-part series in which we talk to people involved in Bowdoin College's new solar array on the Brunswick Naval Air Station. For this episode, we spoke to Shana Stewart-Deeds, a lab instructor in Bowdoin's biology and environmental studies departments. Shana specializes in ecology and loves amphibians. She and her students have put a good deal of thought into the complex choices that go into siting and managing a solar project. In the following conversation, we asked Shana about the ecological story behind Bowdoin's newest solar project. Well, Shana, if you want to start off, if you could tell us like a little bit about your background and your interest in ecology. Sure. So my name is Shana Stewart-Deeds, and I'm a laboratory instructor at Bowdoin in the environmental studies and biology departments. And we were talking this week about how circuitous our routes to where we are have ended up. So a lot of us lab instructors have done lots of other jobs before we ended up at Bowdoin. But for me, despite that education and outreach and environmental science and ecology have been something I have always been interested in. I don't remember not being interested in that. I think that part of that stems from following my parents around outside. My dad, I come from a hunting family. My dad is a hunter, an avid hunter, but a respectful one. And I can't remember the last time he actually got a deer, but mostly he just likes to be out there following them and tracking them and learning about them. And I just have always been interested in watching birds with my mom and gardening and thinking about how the ecology of our home and our backyard works. And then that just kind of developed into a wider world. I also think what I like about ecology is that you think in environmental science, you think about interconnections and that's the way my brain works. I think big picture interconnections between ideas in academics. Now it's, it's sort of the rage to bring in community work and community activism, whereas the ties between the ecology and community have been something I've thought about and worked on forever, <laughs> my whole career. And so I, I think it's great that, that connect, those interconnections are happening in academia now. I mean, there's the messy program at University of Maine and John Lichter's work and Eileen's work, Eileen Johnson, and just bringing together community aspect of ecology and how humans are animals and we impact these systems and we need to think about how we can do it in a sustainable way. So I just really like thinking big picture and thinking about how we can respect communities of people and of non-human organisms. And so that, that's my, that's how I got here, I guess. <laughs> it's yeah. just something that interests me that ended up being something that I could do for work. <laughs> <laughs> and then what is your role in the class that you teach? So I'm the laboratory instructor and typically my role I see my role as getting students outside in Maine and learning about Maine's natural history and ecology and having a very hands-on lab and building relationships with students so that they feel like they um, can ask questions and get things wrong and improve their learning and their scientific literacy in a safe space. And that's been such a challenge this year, but it's like my two favorite things about teaching at Bowdoin, getting students outside and 
building strong relationships have been very challenged this year, but I try to do that remotely anyway. And so I teach the laboratory components of the courses that I teach. So in the fall, I teach ecology, which is in the biology department and is part of the EEMB concentration. And then in the spring, I teach perspectives in environmental science, which is the science requirement for the ES co-major. So we kind of wanted to shift over to talking about the former Navy base in particular. Can you give us a broad strokes picture of like the ecological context at the base? Like what are some dominant habitat types, some common species? Well, I think what's so interesting about the military base and military bases across the country is that they were established long before the cities and towns were fully developed around them. And so in a lot of places, those military bases, once they're decommissioned, end up being really rich ecological habitat, despite the legacy of military use that may include things like armaments and ammunition and and pollution from the activities there. On the other hand, they also end up being contiguous habitat in an area that is developed around it. So they end up becoming really important intact habitats for, for the organisms that live in the area and may even house um, habitat that no longer exists in a landscape because it might have been easily developable or prime real estate. So the Brunswick Naval Air Station has several habitat types. They include a lot of the things you would find in the town commons, the town forest that's across the street, which would be mixed deciduous and coniferous forest and um, some wetlands. I've had students out there looking for vernal pools. We have significant vernal pools on the Naval Air Station property that includes spotted salamander and wood frog eggs. There's also students have found four-toed salamanders out there and other really fun amphibians. And I happen to love amphibians, so I like going out there with students to find them, but they're also indicators of habitat quality. Some organisms are obligate to vernal pools, so they can only breed in vernal pools. So there's wetlands, there's vernal pools, there's forest. There's also recreational paths and being out there on the base with my family, we walking and biking, we've seen white-tailed deer, we've seen turkey. Um, the student-run Huntington Bird Club has an annual bird count, and we've gone out there and found common species like black-capped chickadees and tufted titmice and the various woodpeckers we have here and white-throated sparrows, pine wobblers and savanna sparrows and chipping sparrows. But sometimes there's more unusual species out there. The snowy owls sometimes hang out out there. And there are also a couple of rare birds that are known from the site, the grasshopper sparrow and the upland sandpiper, which are critically imperiled or vulnerable in the state rank and are two of the rare threatened or endangered species that have been found out there historically. It's just a, it's an interesting habitat because what's wild is that a lot of the habitat probably wouldn't exist without the airport and the army base being out there because their management for the airport has allowed there to be the, have the existence of a blue stem blueberry sand plain grassland natural community, which is also imperiled in the, in the state because those soils are really well drained and nice for development and ended up being in uh, areas that were really prime for development. And so because of the airport and the naval air station, there's a rare community out there that some of these rare species are associated with. Going back to the amphibians and, and I'm in total agreement with all your students who love amphibians. I remember going out there with perspectives and yes, and it was so fun to, to find salamanders. 
They're um, so charismatic. They really are. <laughs> How awesome is it to be able to basically walk from campus and, and find them and hold them in your hand and, and learn about them? And it's, it's one <laughs> Most... of the best parts of my job is taking students out there. <laughs> Their eggs were so weird. It was just like so cool to look at these like giant goose blobs. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> Marie, I'm pretty sure you got flooded when we were out there. I That's feel it. like I remember you getting stuck. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Those were fit. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how the area for the solar site was selected out of this ecological area? Sure. So another project that we usually do in environmental um, perspectives in environmental science 201 in the spring is a spatial analysis or GIS analysis. We do that with the help of Eileen Johnson, who lends her expertise to these labs. And we come up with projects, or we try to come up with projects that are not only a learning opportunity for students, but also useful to an organization or meaningful to a group that's looking at some sort of project. And so in this, the last couple of springs, we've looked at the Naval Air Station and thought about where would we site another solar site if Bowdoin wanted to add a solar site to the property, because Keisha and Bethany in the sustainability office were thinking about where could we site a new solar development, especially after the laws changed in Maine that allowed them to be larger and um, allowed net metering for large projects. So students looked at things such as slope and aspect. So for any solar project, you want to have the panels not be on too steep of a slope. Um, usually less than 15 degrees is good. And then you also want them to be south facing because obviously you can gather the most solar energy with your panels are south facing. And we also looked at areas that would be prohibited by state or local ordinances. So we couldn't have solar within 10 feet of a property line. We couldn't have it within 250 feet of a vernal pool buffer. And we couldn't have it within 75 feet of streams and wetlands or within flood zones. Um, which makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't want to build your, not only is it good for the habitats, but you wouldn't want to build your solar panels in like really mucky areas. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have electricity right near water, that sort of thing. So once we looked at those factors, then students also thought about trade-offs between green infrastructure and green energy development and the natural and cultural history of the area. So to generalize, we've seen in Maine since the law has changed, there have been a lot of solar companies that have proposed development in sites that are forested because it seems to them easier to come in and clear cut a forest and start from there in order to put up solar panels, ground mount solar panels. But the, the problem with that is you're clear cutting forest, which is also um, you know sequestering carbon and important habitat in Maine. And so students really grappled with, you know, should we choose areas where all those criteria that I just stated are met and are forested, or should we choose places that are already clear? And the original solar array that we put out at the base was in an already cleared area in order to avoid cutting trees. And what else should we prioritize? Should we prioritize avoiding areas that might have some cultural significance, which could include the rec paths, but could also include um, archaeological sites or, or findings from history and prehistory? Or should we think about um, not impacting this rare habitat? And so students really thought carefully about any impacts that the array might have and tried to pick sites that would mitigate those impacts in ways that they thought were important. 
And the site, there were a couple sites on the property that came back as prime for the new solar array. One that kept coming back was this area near the original solar panels because a lot of it was already cleared. It was near the airport, which is already developed, and it would have easy access for people managing the site because if you're already managing the initial solar site, you can manage the secondary one at the same time. So there were a lot of benefits to that site, but it also was proposed in this rare grassland sand plain habitat. This semester, my students in ecology class that I teach with Patty Jones looked at what kind of management for both the installation and after installation could we have at the site that was maybe even not only disturbing the grassland habitat, but beneficial to the grassland habitat and to native main pollinators and to the rare threatened and endangered species that are out there. So that's something that we looked at this spring. What are some of the proposals that came out of that? So students did a really great job of thinking, again, about this push. I mean, conservation is always about the push and pull of the stakeholders. And in our class, and personally, I think of the stakeholders not only as human stakeholders, but also the non-human stakeholders. So the habitat, the organisms that live there, um, the abiotic and biotic factors of those ecosystems. And so students did a great job of thinking about, okay, if we're going to put the solar site here, which makes a lot of sense because not a lot of trees will have to be cut down. It's already cleared. It's near the solar site, et cetera. How can we mitigate any negative impacts and maybe even enhance that habitat by uh, proper management? And, and Soul Systems, who is the company that's working with Bowdoin to develop this solar system, were really and are really encouraging of student input and excited to get student recommendations and excited also to have students involved in the process as they install the solar and also in the future for checking management and looking at long-term studies. So I'm really excited that Bowdoin chose a company that's so open to working with students, which isn't always the case. Students were tasked with finding these answers about, you know, if should we use a seed mix, which is common in under solar sites, or should we what kind of invasive species management should we have? Or how might we manage the plants so that they don't grow above the solar panels? Because obviously you can't have solar panels put up and then have trees come and shade them. That is not going to work. So they thought about things first of installation. So some solar companies will come in and just till the land or put down herbicides and pesticides in order to kill everything that's there and then start, you know, quote, fresh from on that system. And one student recommendation was obviously no herbicides or pesticides because if we're thinking about pollinators or rare plant species, those things are out. So no herbicides and pesticides. And also though a couple of trees need to be cleared on these acres, what do we do about readying the land for the solar panels? And their suggestion was a controlled burn prior to installation because the sampling grassland habitat and the rare species that are there. There are a couple rare sedges also. They are fire adaptive and they actually flourish after fires and and there tends to be more um, germination of seed after fires. So their recommendation is to work with the local organizations, including the fire department and the town of Brunswick and propose a controlled burn prior to installation um, because obviously it couldn't happen after installation because the solar panels can't be around fire. But And that would also potentially 
discourage invasive species. So that was a recommendation from students. Also with management, right now the current solar site is managed through mowing and students recommended that the new solar site and the old solar site only be mown once a year in the late fall, which would be probably around October, you know, as late as you can before it snows in Maine. And the benefit of mowing later in the season would be to allow pollinators and nesting birds and other organisms that would be out there the chance to finish nesting um, before the before the mowing. And some students also had great suggestions of, well, what if you only weed wax? So you're just taking down the things that might shade the panels. Or what if you only mow half at a time so that there's some refugia for wildlife to escape to whenever mowing is occurring, which is a pretty big disturbance if you're a little pollinator or a snake or something that, you know, birds nesting, that sort of thing. Those are um, all really cool suggestions. Yeah, great suggestions. That, and, you know, removing invasives and monitor for them maintain recreational access. Um, several groups requested installation of informational panels. So people that are out there walking along the rec paths can, can learn more about the solar and the rare species that are out there. Students and Patty and I all recommend not putting a seed mix out there, like a seed mix that you would buy that would normally be used under solar panels. You can get some native seed mixes, but we're a little worried that there might be even native plants that outcompete the rare species. So we, we thought if you're gonna plant something and put seeds out there, how about seeds for things like lowbush blueberry, which is already part of that community or Northern Blazing Star, which has been used in the Kennebuck Plain, Sand Plain in, in Southern Maine. So be really specific about seeds you put out there that are native to that habitat and that natural community. And also think about blooming over the growing season. So if you're thinking about pollinators, you want to have things that bloom in early spring and in the middle of the summer and late in the in the summer fall. A lot of these recommendations students came up with are good recommendations people could use for their lawns and their yards if they wanted to be um, excited about habitats for pollinators and native species in their yards. Like, why not mow only once or mow late in the season and thinking about blooming times of what you plant in your yard and making sure you have native plants in your landscaping. Um, all those things would help native plants and animals in your backyard. And I think if we don't do development of our backyard ecosystems, then we're not really going to have intact ecosystems of native organisms. So it was fun. I really liked seeing their recommendations. Students got into it. We liked, though it was remote, having a project that was hands-on and, and is going to be used by the by Bowdoin and by Soul Systems. So it was a fun project. I'm glad we did it. Just going back to the seed mix, is that like, like you literally just kind of sprinkle seeds out? Is the, the yeah. idea that like after tilling, although that might not happen, that would just like reset, like reduce erosion? Is that like the logic behind that? Reduce erosion and also establish plants that would be short growing and wouldn't overgrow the solar panels and discourage invasives. So when you, when you till land, one of the things you really have to worry about are non-native invasive species coming in and taking over. And there is multiflora rose and bittersweet and, you know, a couple other common invasives at the base. And so we wouldn't want them to come in and just take over because of the management. The solar company has several people that are working on this project. And we talked to them a little bit about seed mix and their 
that they're in agreement with us that they're not usually the greatest idea if you're thinking about conservation and that they're thinking about you know when when they remove if if they have to remove any topsoil from the base saving it and then spreading it back out so that there if there is a native plant seed bank in that layer of soil that they'll be able to grow and then seeds you could you could just disperse seeds after the panels are in of the species that you want to encourage so that they establish themselves and reestablish themselves rather than non-native or invasive plants or or even local common plants that would just outcompete those mm -hmm. grassland species so for any of these techniques is there a body of research that has given some sort of precedent as to what works and what doesn't there is a shocking lack of research on solar installation and it's really a great opportunity for students if they want to have an honors project or or for maybe our class to have a another long-term project of looking at what species are out there um, species richness and diversity out there and then following it through time because there's been quite a lot of research on pollinators with like yard maintenance like mowing and not mowing and what kind of plants attract pollinators, but there's been almost no research under solar. And part of that is because a lot of these large solar farms, you know, are new. There hasn't been a lot of research on them because they're just happening now. And in Maine, there's so much interest in them, but not a lot of boots on the ground of just people, you know, following them through time. And so I think Bowdoin is committed to, to setting up some long-term research out there, or, or at least doing some monitoring of what's happening with especially the plants. But but it's a real opportunity for someone that's interested in this kind of work or interested in pollinators or plants or solar to do some long-term research out there. I was kind of wondering exactly what you were saying is like, this is kind of a new thing. Like solar mm -hmm. hasn't been on the scale that it is currently like pretty much ever in Maine. But I'm wondering if there are sort of research areas that would be applicable, like if there's other forms of development that have similar impacts. I can't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that like specifically is just shading particular areas, but not necessarily like covering the ground itself. Well, I mean, other infrastructure, like putting in wind turbines or managing your property for native species or non-permeable pavement, like, you know, permeable pavement development, best practices for sustainability. I mean, there, there have been that for a while, have been those for a while, but not really. I mean, <laughs> because solar is so, towns are just now adopting ordinances that are allowing solar to be a land use in Maine in and of itself, not associated with any other kind of development. to have solar farms be allowed at the town level requires ordinances um, and also their management require, well, they don't require ordinances, but it's great. Thompson just passed a solar ordinance that, that is really thoughtful about encouraging solar development in the places we want it to happen and discouraging solar development by clear-cutting intact habitat in the town. And as, but as far as research goes, there just, there really isn't a lot. I mean, the, the solar, solar systems wasn't even sure what seed mix to use here in the Northeast because they hadn't developed a project in the Northeast and they've done a couple of native plantings and seed mix development in other states out West and then in the Midwest, but nothing in the Northeast. So it's really, it's groundbreaking research. It's 
And it's important because if we're going to management, manage these systems and this green infrastructure in a way that is sustainable, that produces green jobs, that produces a healthy native habitats, we really need some data on what what's working and what isn't. And hopefully Bowdoin's project can be a place where we can get some of that data. You talked earlier about military bases as really kind of unintentional ecological islands. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that we should know about what's going on with ecological conservation on other military bases? Well, I, I mean, I worked on another, another base in Rhode Island, which I did a management plan for invasive species. I think it depends on who buys them, right? When it, once yeah. military bases are decommissioned, then they're up for sale and they are often bought by the towns or by developers or by small groups or community members might buy their housing. So it's really piecemeal across the US, but there's such an opportunity there for environmental conservation and, and connectivity of landscape. I mean, we might all do a really good job of making our backyards ecological oases for native species, but if they're not connected in some way to a larger system, then they're not as effective. And so having that swath along both sides of the um, Hartswell Road, where you have the town commons on one side and the naval station um, on the other side, despite the road separating them, there's a lot of connectivity of habitat there that's really important, not only for the non-human organisms, but for recreation. I mean, there are mountain bike trails out there, running, walking trails. Our Bowdoin ski team uses trails out there to practice. All of our athletics use trails for running. And, you know, I taught my son how to ride his bike on the trails out there because they're quiet and they're safe and it's a really a it's a wonderful opportunity for recreation for the human community but also contiguous forests the wetlands the vernal pools those are so important for our local non-human organisms as well they're they're really they're just an opportunity and i'm glad that brunswick has worked within the community to see that opportunity and i hope that mira will also think about um, how they develop or if they develop that property and think about the ecological significance and the opportunity for conservation of large space that just doesn't really come around in our developed towns all that often. But you also have to think about pollution out there. There, there have been cleanups by the Navy. There was part of the Naval Air Station is listed as Superfund site for PCB pollution. And I'm not worried to be out there, but I wouldn't be eating the dirt, right? <laughs> so... Yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots of opportunity also for Bowdoin students to appreciate that property and use it for research in a way where you can access it so easily. I mean, we have a lot of wonderful research stations. We have the Coastal Study Center. We have Kent Island, but but to have the opportunity to be able to walk or bike or take a very short ride there from campus and be in a ecosystem that they, the students can learn about or do research in or faculty and staff as well. It's really, it's really a sweet system. I guess I'm like curious about military bases just for their like sheer size. Like there's right. not anything else that can maintain just like such a large piece of space as like open land. Like our backyard is great, but it's like a quarter of an acre right. <laughs> max. Find it like a really interesting opportunity. I completely agree. And, and an opportunity that won't, come back again. I mean, 
those spaces have been undeveloped since the military took them over. And if we develop them, that's it. That's the <laughs> that's the last of our big undeveloped habitat in a lot of our towns. I know it's worth thinking carefully about how we utilize that space as a community. And going back to recreation, I like. I was on the cross country team for like the first two years of Bowdoin, but, and then I stopped, but I kept running and I actually like hadn't thoroughly explored that area until quarantine. Cause I just had so much more mm-hmm. time to run. And I am like, as you were saying, like really boggled by like how many trails there are out there. I like, there were just a bunch that I had just never found. Um, but was super excited to see that like four years later, there's like still trails to explore in that area. And it saved us in quarantine. I'm sure you and I are not the only families that were yeah. saved by having that natural area. It, mm-hmm. you know, you don't realize how much you need it until you have to get out of your house <laughs> safely. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, thank you, <laughs> air station. <laughs> um, so our last question that we have, unless Marie, you have any other questions is one that we ask to everyone who comes on the show, and that is, what does sustainability mean to you? I saw that you were going to ask me that question. Yeah. It's the hardest question of all the questions, especially to distill down to a soundbite. But it's good that you ask everybody because everybody's answer is going to be different. When I think about sustainability, I think about balance. And no matter how you define sustainability, if you think about sustainability of traditions or ecosystems or organisms. I think about balancing the needs of the individuals with the needs of the community to survive and thrive and and keep going into perpetuity. So I think a lot about sustainability from an ecological perspective and a human perspective and, and think about, you know, how can we humans see ourselves as animals and not and as part of the system and not take more than we should in order to cause negative impacts on on our natural system. But I think that balance of what do the individuals need versus what does the system need versus how will we continue into the future is what makes a sustainable system, balancing those needs. That's a great answer. Well, I don't know. I don't even know (laughs) if I answered the question, but that's how I think about it. I think it's a really good way to think about it. We've, we've heard a lot of views over the course of this season on sustainability, but all of them do seem to revolve around some form of balance, balancing one thing. Yeah. And I think you can think about sustainability in all aspects of your life and in the lives of the, the organisms around you or in the earth itself and different lens. I like thinking about different parts of our lives with the lens of sustainability. I think that's why it's good that Bowdoin has a sustainability group, that we're, we're a business and we are um, an academic institution, but if you have the sustainability office that allows us as an institution to think about all aspects of Bowdoin with the lens of sustainability, and I think that's really important. Actually, I do have one question. Out of curiosity, do you know um, how the like current solar installation is being managed and how the addition of a new one, how that's going to work? Yeah, they won't be connected. The new one will be connected to the grid. As far as management just around the panels, right now we mow, which is good because they, they, they mow late in the year and they don't do a lot of management that would make a different impact the system that's out there. 
And I think that we just have an opportunity to take it a step further with the new one as far as providing habitat for pollinators and really encouraging that rare community that is out there. So do you have anything else you want to say, Shana? Thanks for interviewing me. <laughs> good to see you both. Yeah, good to see you too. Throughout the 2020-2021 academic year, we will be publishing episodes online at bowden.edu slash sustainability under the green tea tab. There you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. Green Tea features interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members with a focus on sustainability. Thanks for Thanks listening. For listening. <laughs>